You guys ready to talk about Judgment Day? That's why you're here, right? For those of you that are guests for the first time, whoever invited you, they knew that this was your day. So glad to see you all. My name is Pete, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to continue in our series through the Apostles' Creed, which is an ancient summation of the Christian faith that has been passed down to us from uh, generations before. <clears throat> And so we are going line by line uh, through this ancient creed, and this morning we come to the line that says, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. So, you ready, ready to do this? It's going to be good. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a little thing going, so I might mute from time to time. Is that a good way to do it, Kip? Or just do it in the mic? Okay, <laughs> do it in the mic then. <clears throat> Um, as we talk about this, uh, this part of the creed, it's, we'll just acknowledge up front, it's one of the most mysterious and controversial aspects of everything that this creed confesses. And partly is just the simple reason that we're dealing with a confession of faith regarding something that is yet to happen in the story of God and his world. And so a lot of the other parts that we've started with, we can look back and celebrate the story of Christ coming to the world, of his death, of his resurrection, um, the gift, gift of the Spirit, and all of that. But when we come to the promise that Jesus will one day return to the earth and, uh, and that he will be a judge for all those who have lived... It's mysterious because it hasn't happened yet. And it is something that the Bible speaks a lot about that even Jesus himself speaks much about. And so we can't disregard it just because we don't totally understand it. But the problem is that so much of the biblical literature that deals with the second coming or the return of Christ is written in a genre of biblical literature known as apocalyptic, which of course has to do with things to come. But it's also by nature a genre that deals largely in symbolism and in metaphor with dreams and in visions and that sort of thing. And so there's a whole bunch that God has revealed to us in the scripture about the return of Christ, um, but it's really difficult to boil down any rock-solid doctrines when you're dealing with apocalyptic literature. And so all I want to say is that there's going to be different theological perspectives uh, and positions when it comes to the topic of end times, the return of Christ, judgment, and all that kind of stuff, and which is why I appreciate that the framers of the creed don't try to flesh out in a whole lot of detail the when and the where and all the implications, but simply say that Christians, ever since the time of Jesus, have believed that one day he will return to the earth again. And part of what he will do upon his return is to serve as a judge over all humanity. And so that's uh, what we're going to talk about this morning. The passage that we're looking in is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which Carrie just read for us. If you want to read there uh, or follow along there, we'll, we will be there for most of the morning. And, uh, and I know that this is a super weird, controversial, uh, maybe scarring topic for some of us. Uh, we come to this passage and we get the phrase, thief in the night. For those of you that grew up in evangelicalism in the 70s and 80s, what do you think of? 
the movie, right? 1972 classic that they showed at every youth event and camp to literally try to scare the hell out of all these kids, knowing that one day Jesus would come back and, and we should all be afraid of that. Let me just say one thing, and we'll get to it in a, towards the end, but the very f- final line of this passage in verse 11 is, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. And so when Paul, the, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica, when he speaks to them about this promise of Jesus' return to the world, his main goal isn't to induce fear or trembling or anxiety or anything like that within his readers. He writes this as an encouragement, that this confession of faith that Christ is coming again as judge, he says, should be an encouragement to the people of God. It should be something that calls us into greater love and compassion, deeper worship, more inclusive community, more generous hospitality in the world, that this doctrine, this promise should be encouraging. And so we'll get to that in a moment, but uh, we'll start with uh, the beginning first. So verse 1, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So we're going to focus in on this phrase, the day of the Lord, all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures, way back in the prophets, uh, all the way up into the life and ministry of Jesus, as well as the apostles' teaching, there's this emphasis on this thing called the day of the Lord. Sometimes it's just called the day, or sometimes it's called the judgment day, uh, eventually in the New Testament, the day of Christ. But there is this biblical view that first century Jews, like Jesus, like Paul, had that this thing called the day of the Lord was a significant moment in God's story. And so here's how first century Jews thought about human history. It was basically divided into two major eras. The first is this age, and the second is the age to come. So all through the scriptures, you see this language of this age, the present age, and then the coming age, or the age to come. And so this age has to do with the world that we live in now. The world that is good and made by God, but at the same time has been broken and pulled apart by sin, by evil, by wickedness, by injustice. It's the age where things like all the tragedies that we're witnessing in our country, in our world this week unfold where there's shootings, where there's major uh, political unrest, where there's war, where there's violence, where there's natural disasters sweeping out entire uh, regions. Those are the marks of this age, this present age that we live in. And then the age to come is the world that God will bring about one day. That all the way, way back in the story of God, the prophets foretold of the day to come, the age to come, when God would make everything new, when God would reconcile all things to himself, where he would once and for all deal decisively with sin, with death, with evil, with wickedness, with corruption, with injustice. We're told in Revelation, no more sickness, no more mourning, no more pain, no more suffering, no more destruction. And so this age, the world we live in today that humanity has been in all the way since the fall is the world we know best. But this age to come is the world that we live into with hope. 
that one day all things will be made known. So if you've been around here any length of time, you're already getting tired of hearing about the vision God has given us or invited us into as a church, the reconciliation of all things. Everything repaired, all severed relationships put back together, the world as it ought to be. So this age, age to come. The day of the Lord within Jewish thought, within the story of the Bible, is the day that serves as the hinge point between this age and the age to come. The transition from this age to the age to come is this day known as the day of the Lord. And so when Paul speaks of this in verse 2 to a mostly Jewish audience, they have all this background and all this history, all this story. They believe that there's a day coming, and he goes that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so the first thing that uh, he tells us here is when it comes to the question of the day of the Lord, return of Christ, the judgment, um, if we're primarily asking when is that going to happen, then he goes, we're asking the wrong question. There's actually even a point where some of Jesus' disciples say, Lord, when will your kingdom come? When is the day coming? And he goes, I actually don't even know, guys. That's only for the Father to know. So it's like, that's not the most important question. And we've all seen crazies that obsess and do all the math and interpret the blood moons and all this kind of stuff and predict the end of the world on certain dates and times. And just so clearly from Jesus, from Paul, he's going, you're asking the wrong question. But there are other questions that are worth asking. Starting with, what is this day all about? And ultimately, how could this day actually uh, be good news for us? And it has to do with the idea that judgment in a Hebrew mind wasn't primarily about the, it wasn't used the way we use the term judgment. It wasn't about vengeance. It wasn't about punishment. It wasn't about destruction or condemnation. But it was about the idea of healing, the idea of renewal. The idea of judgment has to do with justice, of turning things to what they ought to be. So it's about separating life from death, good from evil, light from darkness. And so for many of us, when we get to this line in the creed and hear that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead, we take this idea of judgment we have that's all about condemnation and fear and punishment and payback, and we try to synthesize that with the picture of God that we have in Christ, which is a God of compassion, mercy, forgiveness, love, and yeah, justice. But I would argue that we actually would make a mistake if we take the fact that Jesus is returning as a judge and say that somehow that's the other side of Jesus that we don't talk about. That yes, he's loving, compassionate, forgiving, but he's also a God of wrath. He's also a God of anger. He's also a God of judgment. We're doing it backwards. That's not how this is supposed to work. It's supposed to work. So here's what I would say. If there is going to be a judge at the end of human history, and if that judge is going to call every human being who's ever lived to give account for their life, and if that judge is going to make determinations on the eternal fate of every single human who has ever walked the earth, then man, I hope that judge is Jesus. 
Who would be a better judge? Man, I hope that judge knows everything. Man, I hope that judge is fair. Man, I hope that judge is compassionate and just. I hope that judge is merciful, but also devoted to restoration and to making things right. And this is the first part of why I think Paul wants this to be an encouragement. That yes, there will be judgment at the end. And guess what? That judge is Jesus. Not some idiot. Not some dictator. Not some power-hungry, corrupt, uh, whatever, right? We understand how important the character and competency of a judge is. Imagine if there was like a country and there's a controversy about who should be a judge based on their past or not. Wouldn't that be crazy, right? We understand it's important that whoever's occupying that place of judge is just in and of themselves. And so I hope you get what I'm saying. Don't take this idea of judgment and go, oh, there's this whole other idea of Jesus that we're missing. No, Jesus is the one who judges. And in Jesus, we see the picture of who God is and what God's like. So if that's who our judge is, then the next question is, who's being judged and what are they being judged for? Anybody watch The Good Place? No? A couple, okay. I guess... In public speaking, you're supposed to raise your hand when you want people to raise their hand. Um, I just stood there like this, and then that's what you guys did too. So I wish I could take that moment back. But it's it's one of the few like primetime sitcoms that Jen and I enjoy and would recommend. And it has to do with this kind of, you know, picture of the afterlife. And it's fascinating philosophically and theologically in other ways. Um, But there's this basic picture that when you come into the afterlife that every single thing that you've done in your life has been recorded. And it's either good or bad. It's either red or green. And they're keeping track upstairs. And eventually at the end, if the good outweighs the bad, then you go to the good place. If the bad outweighs the good, you go to the bad place. Now, obviously, that's what basically all religions and faith systems have taught in one way or another. Uh, throughout human history. And so it just kind of is a caricature of it. But if that is true, then that would be an incredibly terrifying thing, right? To never know, have I done enough good things to outweigh the bad? Did my really big good things outweigh my really bad, bad things? And I'm constantly living in the fear of this judgment that's coming. But according to this story, that's not actually the way that works in the judgment of Christ. That our eternal destiny isn't consumed over how good or how bad we were, but somehow he has this whole other economy, this whole other metric that he's utilizing. And it has to do with the fact that he himself has entered into the story of humanity. That the judge, Jesus, isn't distant and removed from human history or from the human story, but somehow he has immersed himself within the sinful condition. He has suffered among us. He has lived as one of us, becoming like us. And the fact that we've already celebrated his incarnation, his suffering, death, resurrection, his ascension, that all of that actually dictates the outcome of this judgment. And so, first of all, we're saying this is encouraging. It's not a fear-driven thing. But then there is a call, isn't there? He goes uh, in verse 4, You brothers and sisters are not in the darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're like children of the light, children of the day. 
We do not belong to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Okay, so there's this invitation, again, using metaphorical language of light and darkness, day and night. And he's saying for those that live in Christ, those that have received a new identity because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, then the fact that there is this coming judgment isn't something that necessarily, although it is sobering, and it should be sobering, there should be a healthy fear of God that it produces within us, but it isn't designed to serve as this anxious, am I good enough? Have I been too bad? Am I going to make it? That sort of thing. He's saying, no, those are all the wrong questions. He's saying, for those who are in Christ, a new day has come. And you are invited to live in the light as children of the day. You're invited to live into the promised future of resurrection. You're invited to live as citizens of God's kingdom here on earth. He says, this, if this is true, this changes everything. That Christ now calls us in light of his sacrifice and resurrection, but also in light of his coming judgment, to live set apart, spirit-filled, holy lives of Christ-filled light. So let's just wrestle it out a little bit. Um, my son Mo is eight now. When he was about three, on a regular basis, he and I would have cereal and theology in the mornings. And we'd sit at the counter in our house, and he would love to ask me questions about God, about the Bible, or just about sports or <laughs> whatever. Um, but I distinctly remember a three-year-old Moses, as we're sitting there eating Cheerios, goes, Dad, what would you do if there was no God? And I go, well, I'd be really sad, and I'd have to get a new job. <laughs> 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 and I go, what would you do, Mo, if there was no God? And he goes, well, I'd go out and find all the bad guys and punch them in the eyeball. <laughs> and I go, well, why wouldn't you do that now? And he goes, well, if there's a God, then he can handle all the bad guys. Three years old. And he's already wrestling with the implications of this, right? That if there truly is a God who is a God of justice and at the end of human history is going to usher in this new day, this age to come, then it frees us up as followers of that Jesus to not have to take judgment into our own hands to not have to pay back evil with evil, to not have to hold a grudge, to not have to hold bitterness and anger, not to have to bring punishment and vengeance upon those in the world, even if they deserve it, because we trust that there is a better judge than us who knows more, who sees it all, who always does what is right and what is just. And one day, whenever that day is, in Christ, God will make everything right again and put things in their place, separating light from darkness and day from night.
So what does that mean then? He goes on to use this language of armor, which is what we talk about when we talk about battle or war. And we go, okay, so as those who worship this King Jesus, who's also a judge, then we should take up our swords and go to war, right? Well, look at the armor. In verse 8, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Not vengeance, not anger, not hate, not rage. Yes, we do arm ourselves as I love what he says, people who belong to the day but we harm ourselves with faith, with compassion, with generosity, with love. Not acting on God's behalf in order to earn more and more good points, but somehow freed up in the reality that justice belongs to God. One day he will make all things right, and we get to be part of that day. And so here's the really simple paradigm that I find really helpful when it comes to thinking about the age to come the age that is, and the day of the Lord in the middle. The thing that the early Jews understood was that these two realities would shape human history and that this day of the Lord in the middle was the pivot point. But the thing that so many of the people missed when Jesus finally showed up is that he shows up in this age as a visitor from the age to come. It sounds kind of weird in sci-fi, But Jesus comes to earth as a visitor from the future. And so when he shows up, he doesn't just talk about the age to come as if it's something that's far away and distant, although we know there's a a component that we still look forward to, but he shows up and says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. The age that is to come has broken into the age that is. The future has broken into the present. And so Jesus walks the earth as a visitor from the future. And whatever he sees in this world that isn't the way it's going to be in the world to come, he brings kingdom power to bear. He speaks powerfully against corrupt forces. He, like, he sees a sick person and he's like, hey, in the age to come, there's no sickness. So he, he heals them. He sees a dead person. He's like, hey, in the age to come, there's no death. So he raises them from the dead. He sees objectified or abused or oppressed lower members of society. And he goes, that's not the way it is in the age to come. And so he empowers and he elevates and he has compassion. And he upends all these systems and and structures that were normative in the age that is. And then through his life, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. Somehow we, who live in the age that is, are included in him, in his identity as the king in the age that is to come. And I don't know about you, but I think it sounds sweet to live in this world as a visitor from the future. To let my ultimate reality and paradigm Be shaped not by the world that is, but by the world that will be. What kind of person, what kind of community would that create? Would it create a community that's going around known for being judgmental? Known for being hypocritical? Known for being self-righteous and power-hungry? 
No, that's the age that is. If we live as visitors from the future, we walk around the age that it is, clothed with faith, with love, with compassion, with generosity. We speak out against, even protest against, the broken systems of the age that is as representatives of the world that will be one day. And so that's why I think in the end, when he gets uh, to verse 10, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. The entire book, the entire letter of 1 Thessalonians has to do with how what we believe about the future shapes the way we live in the present. And for followers of Jesus, this is a revolutionary story. That one day, God will come make everything right, separate light from darkness, good from evil. And as children of the light who have been saved by the grace of God through faith, we are now invited to live in this world as visitors from the future. And at the same time, there is this sobering reality that we stand <clears throat> accountable for our lives, for what he's entrusted to us, what has he given us, what opportunity, what education, what background, what gifts, what skills, what privilege have we been entrusted with? And we want to steward that well, not for the sake of we're fearful of being thrown into the bad place, but because what an incredible opportunity to ask, am I doing everything I can do with everything that God has given me in order to announce the kingdom of Jesus here and now? Am I using my gifts, my finances, my job, my family, my body, everything I have as an opportunity to set up little colonies from the future all across Bend and all across the world? So there's an element in which the coming judgment would sober us or focus us or cause us to live this life with a seriousness, knowing that this isn't all there is. And we've been given much, entrusted with much, forgiven of much, loved much, so that we can steward this one life we have and use it to announce the reign of Christ that is both here and is already coming. And so in a strange way, as we come to the table on a regular basis, this is a meal from the future. This is a joining together of Christ's eternal body that reigns in the heavens and will one day return to the earth with his body here and now. That we are called to be a people who live and inhabit the earth as the physical representation of Jesus between his comings. Though his physical body is absent in the way that it once was and the way that it once will be, he calls us to be the body of Christ those that represent him, do his work, live as his hands and feet, and also as his mouth and his heart to the world. And that's part of what we receive again as we come to the table with joy and with gratitude. With the same Holy Spirit that filled Jesus and empowered his life and ministry, come into us and fill and empower us 
for the work that he's called us to do, the thing that he's called us to be in this city and around the world. My gift to you this morning is a short sermon. It doesn't happen often, but today you get it because I love you. (laughs) And I'm just gonna invite you to stand and pray. As we come to the table, come to receive the life of Jesus again. The band will lead us in a time of worship and singing, and I will invite you to bring your voice and to raise your heart to the coming King who will make everything right again one day. Lord Jesus, we worship you, the King of the universe, who has broken into human history in incredible humility and compassion, but also with glory and injustice. And I pray that this promise of your return would fuel and shape us deeply as we think about how you are calling us to steward our vocations, steward our possessions, steward our passions and our privilege for the sake of your future promise. So I pray that this would be a community not marked by judgment or hypocrisy or self-righteousness or anger, but a community marked by a passionate commitment to loving those who you love, to reversing the curse of death and sin and brokenness in the world, and that you would continue the work that you're doing in calling us to be children of your light in a world marked by darkness. We need you, we trust you, we praise you. In Jesus' name.